Hi, fellow geochemists and geochemistry enthusiasts. Welcome to Geochemist Tea, the only podcast for people who love geochemistry with a side of tea. Our mission is to inspire to shed light on the topics not fancy enough to talk about at a conference, but important to delve into. I'm your host, Sam Sure, and this week we're going to be talking with Mike Whitbread about the crossover between classical approaches to interpreting geochemical data and where he believes our industry needs to go. If you feel ill-prepared for this journey, Mike recommends that you have a squiz at Hill et al. 2021 and at Stedman et al. 2021 and at the tutorials at, on the mineral mapping website. For links uh, to everything, head to our website at www.geochemistry.com. Whitbread is the lead geoscientist, geochemistry and analytics at, at Rio Tinto Exploration. Mike, welcome to Geochemistry. Good day. How things going? And uh, Great, look, thanks. I don't know. Look, I just don't know about this whole, uh, you know, not cool enough to talk at a conference stuff. I think uh, the things that we'll talk about today, hopefully, are very interesting. We should be talking about it at conferences a lot more. But there you go. Exactly. And this is something that we need to break down at conferences because these things should be talked about at conferences. So it's a little bit of sarcasm right there. Yeah, no but worries. Thanks for mentioning. So since first talking about the concept for geochemistry, mutual friends of Mike and I have been pressuring me to get in contact with Mike. I won't belabor this part too much, but it was a combination of a little bit weird and pretty cool. So I skimmed your, res your LinkedIn resume, Mike, and it looks like you got your PhD in geochem and then a few years later, you were living the dream, working as a geochemist in industry. Can you talk to our young listeners about your dreams as a 20 year old and how you got into geochemistry? Right. Well, you know, it depends how far back you want to go. But uh, I went into university wanting to do physics, of all things, and then um, worked out that that was actually pretty hard and that biotite and muscovite were pretty cool. So I thought <laughs> I'll do geology then. And I kept chemistry as a, as a major uh, at the same time as well. And, and my worst subject at, at university was analytical chemistry, of course. So that's, that's obviously why I'm involved heavily in analytical chemistry these days. But we um, sounds about right. You know, you know, we're a pretty small group uh, of geologists coming out of the University of Queensland in those days, and and you know we the like it was a pretty interesting time to come out in the mid nineties. Um, things were starting to slow up a little bit, um, and I got a job with Pasminko as an exploration geologist, and uh, that was pretty cool. That was uh, we were dealing with. Uh, lead zinc systems, looking for them in highly weathered terrains. You know, we had a hundred. 120 metres of weathering with you know, 60 metres of leach saprolite. And I was running around as a young geologist in the in the mid 90s. And uh, the extent of our interpretation though of any of the samples we were collecting, we we're doing a lot of rab drilling, do, doing a lot of lag sampling, um, lag sampling first usually, the drilling afterwards. And, <laughs> um, and the extent of our data interpretation was literally looking at um, the facts We'd get a fax through from ALS with zinc numbers on it, and that was it. We'd look down the, the sheet and we'd go, oh, no, there's not much in there. That's it. Move on. 
and that was the extent of our data interpretation. And I thought, I'd gone through university and, you know, it, oh, look, it might have been the dark ages back in the 90s, but still, uh, I thought, well, there's got to be a bit more than that. And then not long after I'd, I'd started, um, Pasmenko hired a geochemist by the name of Dave Laurie, who you might know of, uh -huh. and he came in, and this is almost the tea section, spilling the tea already, but, um, and uh, I can't say too much bad about him because he knows more about me, probably that would be more disastrous, <laughs> but but he came into the company and uh, made some basic geochemical products with our surface data, and one of them, I think, was a, a point of uh, thematic RGB using, I think it was zinc lead silver or something like that, I can't remember. And it blew my mind at the time because we'd just been reading stuff off of facts. And so I I went, oh, well, okay, that's clearly clearly what I want to do is, you know, I want to get more out of the data. And I, you know, I, I wandered through, Pasmico had a sort of a graduate program. And so I wandered through that a little bit, went down to Rosebury in Tasmania as an underground geo, worked out very quickly. I didn't like uh, being underground with other people. <laughs> being underground uh, by itself was actually quite good, but you know, they're having a lot of accidents and incidents, um, you know, hurting a lot of people and, at the time. And so I, I got cast out uh, to look after the exploration leases around Rosebury on the surface, and that was very enjoyable. But right, but at the end of that stint, Pasmico said, we've got nowhere for you to go. The, it was really quite a slow time in the industry, a bit of a downturn. And so I, I was a bit, I was going to lose my job. And Dave suggested, uh, along with a couple of other people, um, uh, the Prince of Insufficient Illumination was one of them. Uh, we won't go into who that was, but uh, okay. uh, but those two hatched up a great plan to to fund a PhD for me uh, with the CRC Lean, um, which was Landscape Evolution Mineral Exploration CRC in Australia. And so I ended up at the University of Canberra, and that's that's my PhD. That I guess that was you know my chrysalis stage where I went from one form to another, went from being an exploration geologist and to being a geochemist. And uh, after that, I came out of, well, you know, there was, I didn't really finish that on time, let's put it that way, because um, Pasminka went broke while I was there. Uh, so I got made redundant while I was doing my PhD because I was on leave of absence. Uh, I've only managed two redundancies. I need to work harder at that. But uh, but uh, that was, a so once I sort of got made redundant by, from them, I was sort of wondering whether I should stay in the industry. And a lot of people face this as a dilemma, you know, they, the industry is very cyclical and as a specialist, it can be hard to find your niche or your role inside companies or, or in the services industry. But fortunately for me, um, Dave had left uh, Pasminko and gone to Anglo and uh, Anglo-American gave me a bunch of um, lithogeochemical project work, you know, so I went around the world for Anglo while I was doing my PhD. Uh, I wasn't really doing my PhD very much at that point, uh, doing uh, alteration studies on, on a bunch of their deposits. Um, so, you know, like Lachine was one of them. I went to Scorpion in Namibia and I did a bunch of really cool stuff. And that was great. And it paid the bills, um, kept my wife happy. Uh, you know, the money was coming in and, <laughs> uh, you know, she was trying to get her career going at the same time. So, uh, you know, that was sort of the transition. And then IA Global formed uh, not long after that. So I finished my PhD via Global Forms, and they uh, asked me if I'd like to join. Again, Dave Laurie was part, you know, he was one of the directors there, so uh, he brought me in, and I guess that's where I got a lot of my pragmatic mentoring and training was was with IA Global as a consultant. But I had, you know, uh, Nigel Brand, who initially was there at the beginning, um, 
and and Dave Laurie and a few others. You know, I had lots of people that I could turn to, to for assistance. So I was the most junior geochemist, and I had a lot of people to to lean on to get that experience. So that was kind of really where I I guess I, I became an applied geochemist in the industry. I had my PhD and I could do with the geochemistry pretty well. But there's lots of other aspects to, to mineral exploration and, and even geometallurgy to some extent. So, so that, that's kind of the pathway through. And it's and it was really just ducking and weaving around lack of jobs or job opportunities. And 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 but I was fortunate that I had someone uh, who who created a, a space for me to get into that, you know, to stay in the game. because uh, I could so easily have left, which is what happens to many people, of course, in the industry. They 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 spiral out of it and then they they find it difficult to come back in. Yeah. Wow. That's super interesting. Yeah. I mean, totally different story and it's not, not the day for that, but, but I think that what you said about just, it takes a bit of resilience to stay in the industry. I, I think it's very rare that there's not one person in our industry that hasn't at one point been affected by a downturn. So anybody that's younger and listening, just know that if this is something that you really want to do, I mean, with me, it took a bunch of years to really get into the industry. And I worked on and off for a little bit, just contracts to contracts, doing my best. But like Mike says, I mean, this is, it's kind of the nature of our industry. But once you get your foothold in, then I'm pretty confident that you guys, that you can, you can definitely find your place. But that was a really fascinating story. I didn't, I didn't really see all that ducking and weaving going on because and your man, your LinkedIn profile. I mean, you just look like you were set up, but everybody take note. You did some ducking and weaving to get your jobs. Nice. Yeah, look, and you know, after I Global, I reached a point where, you know, consulting is is a difficult game. You know, you've got to chase the work and you often don't get to see the end results of the piecework that you do for people. And it's actually very hard to after a certain level, you you stop learning things because you can't see the results of you know you might generate a target but they the client never tells you what happens with it uh so i was tempted to go back into the industry and that's when i i went back into lahir gold uh, as an opportunity they were actually trying to hire another geochemist and i didn't realize it i look i thought the job opportunity was for me because it just looked like me like <laughs> and i walked in and, and and the guy goes well you're not the guy I was looking for but anyway we'll, we'll do the interview and i've got the job so so that's all right. And then they 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 got bought out by Newcrest. So I worked for Newcrest briefly, and I left them to go to BHP because that was a boom time just then. And and so I took the opportunity to to trade up. I guess um, you know it's hard to get promoted sometimes in large companies, and and often the only way forward is is sideways and out. You know, and then go upwards in another company. So you know I went for BHP. BHP fired a lot of us in. Um, in uh, 2013, I think it was, uh, uh, they got rid of all the mineral exploration arm. And uh, that was an interesting story in itself. And then I ended up at MMG uh, for a, quite a while, and that was quite fun. But uh, eventually the, the, the game sort of changed inside that company, and then I, I come across to, to Rio, where I've been for five years now. So I had that, that's the full story, I guess. And uh, hopefully the, you know, that covers uh, some of what your, your listeners might be interested in. No, I, I definitely um, think so. I think it's been very interesting talking to all the different people. Everybody has had a very different story of how they got to where they've been. And I think it just underscores that there is no right path. And it's just a lot of it is just, in a way, it's just kind of grit and just sticking with it. Yeah, look, I, I think one of the other things that's really critical is your network. And, you know, I was lucky that I, I found the right people early on to support my career. And it's really hard to do it by yourself, and some people do, but 
but you know, I can't claim to have done it all by myself by any stretch, right? It, it's, I spent a lot of time in pubs. Uh, it's fortunate that I like drinking beer, um, <laughs> and and meeting people and and chatting with them, you know, and and, and being interested in in the topic when you're in a pub drinking a beer and someone's rabbiting on about their terrible, terrible prospect, you know, it's got nothing going for it. But but sometimes you think that's what's what the story is going to be. And then uh, it ends up leading somewhere else and you can help them uh, as a consultant or or even even if you, I still go to the G pub sometimes and in Australia and, and have conversations with people and you give a little bit of informal advice, right? And people remember that and sometimes you know that karmic rebound is positive, right? And uh, and and net, that's what networks are in a way is you know is a way to you know you help others and sometimes that comes back and helps you in, in ways that you don't foresee. But I, I personally think the network is the most important thing to, to for young geologists or geochemists to develop in their uh, to help their career. You know, it's um, yeah. And to add on to that, I, with my own network, I don't even know. Maybe I'm 10, 15 years out of undergrad now. Maybe 15. Oh my goodness, but. I wasn't going to um, say anything. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but the point being is that now, say, my undergrad network is more mature, say, but really my network all very much derived from I took an opportunity overseas to uh, go to South America and work in exploration there. And then I also took an, another opportunity to work in business development. And those two things combined has just given me such a large network, the one that I would have never had especially at at the age that I am. So I would just recommend to other people look at things that are kind of outside the box as well, because, you know, working in business development for for a technology company, I was able to have access to people at the highest levels of exploration and and mining companies and to hear ideas that there's no way that I would have heard at, you know, 29 or 30. So. Yeah, yeah. that's a great, that's a great point. You know, uh, one of the things I was terrible at was talking uh, to management when I was younger, you know, I was terrified of those people. And, uh, you know, big, scary guys, usually about, you know, 10 foot tall, um, MBAs, uh, measure everything as ratios. Uh, you know, look, you know, you've got to learn to talk to everyone as though they're a human being. And it, it took me a long time to learn that. And, you know, often as a consultant, you're just dealing with the uh, your fellow technical people, and that's the comfortable space where you can talk the same language. Uh, but it doesn't force you to simplify your story down to something that somebody really doesn't have the time to be that interested. How do you sell that to them? And that's um, that, that's actually a very difficult thing. But if you can pick that up, uh, it's a good skill to have for sure. And look, and in IO Global, when I was in there, that was a small company. We were doing lots of consulting work and. And like you say, that's how you establish a network as well, right? You, you you do work for lots of clients and you do hopefully good work for lots of clients, but they were developing IA gas at the same time. And and so you do a lot of training, uh, like I used to do a lot of gas training um, for people, and I still do actually uh, inside inside the company I'm with now. But, um, you know, that, that's, that, that's a really easy way to get to know everyone when you're sitting there helping them learn something. And it's quite sure. rewarding as well. And it's quite fun. I think that this was a really great introduction and I just am actually just incredibly curious. Can your tea match this introduction? And if it can, spill your tea. <laughs> the tea? No, the tea is going to be pretty dull, I think, <laughs> because I, I was trying to work out what tea you could spill without being um, uh, destroyed by someone in turn, right? Uh, there's I too much mutually to assured destruction. Right now, his face is beet red. It must be good. You're, I can see you sweating. No. 
Okay. No, no, no. no, no, no. So I was trying to think of one that um, doesn't relate to my current employer, which is a pretty sensible thing to do. Definitely <laughs> so, sensible. Uh, yeah. So also, I don't so, have geochemistry does not have deep pockets or anything. We can't pay off anything to anybody's employers ever. So let's keep them out of it. Okay. <laughs> no, no. So, but one thing I thought would be a slightly amusing anecdote was um, uh, when I worked for a certain very large mining company, not my current one. Uh, we were, they had a sort of a drive around transparency of costs, right? So, um, so everyone's travel was sort of available to be perused by anyone. And, um, and the industry had gone through the boom and it was starting to sort of, you know, sort of cycle down to a bit of a cratering and politically we're in, we knew we were in trouble in the company anyway. And, and, uh, uh, some of our guys started to work out that they could predict which offices would be closed based on the travel schedules that would be published. And so they they sort of worked out the um, it's like a principal components of travel. All right. So if certain variables, and in this case, the variables are individuals of a certain level within the organisation, and they may not be based in the same office. But if they were all travelling to the same point at the same time, then you knew that that office was going to be shut. And uh, oh my God. <laughs> so, so I hate to um, laugh at that. <laughs> yeah, well, you got to you kind of got to have a sense of humour about. It. I mean, yeah. of course, some people were quite devastated when they lost their roles, and and you know that's it's a hard thing, right? Particularly when you're going into mm. a downturn. But at least, um, at least, I mean, this company hired smart people, and they were good people. Uh, that's one of the advantages of, of working in majors is, is right. Is you, the talent pool is pretty strong. Sure. Uh, so we, we had really smart people uh, who worked out very quickly what was going on. And ineffectively, people got a heads up that they were going to lose their jobs. So, um, you know, rather than, you know, normally it's all secret squirrel until um, the Grim Reaper comes through the office and takes everyone out. But uh, uh, this way, people got a bit of an insight and go, oh, four weeks, they're going to come through. We'll probably get nailed then. So they'd start looking for other roles. And uh, so it gave people a bit of a heads up. And you could walked through a couple of different offices that got nailed one after the other where that happened. Um, so, yeah, that's my tea, I guess. Hopefully that was kind of interesting. It is kind of interesting. It's kind of, um, I think, worrying that that we think that this is kind of normal. It's really kind of unfortunate in our industry. But, um, <laughs> yeah, that was good. I managed not to say anyone's names, which I'm quite proud of. I mean, and I have no guesses. There are zero guesses here, so. Mm, no, that's right. Yeah. Now pivoting towards the last part of our of our um, of our podcast, we're going to be talking now about, and we've already I think discussed quite a bit about it, but I'm really looking forward to really getting into some more of the specifics of it. But um, looking at the paper and your the different papers that you shared and your thoughts on them. So here we're gonna be talking about the crossover between classical approaches to interpreting geochemical data and where industry needs to go. I just wanna just make a few quick comments first to, to everybody is that typically geochemistry's guests choose one piece of literature. And I wanna thank Mike for being the first to recommend a paper, a 200 page codes report and a myriad of website tutorials. And a big thank you to Mineral Mapping for posting these. Yeah, look, um, <clears throat> the idea was not for you to actually go and read all that. So I hope, I, well, unless you're really interested. <laughs> um, it was, it was to, it was, you know, we, yeah, as you say, we kind of covered it a little bit in that it was, it was there to show the different parts of uh, of the puzzle or, or the solution, depending on how you want to look at it. You know, um, 
you've got um, the, the new kind of data that's been collected, you know, and that's what the Stebbins papers are around. Some of the approaches about boundary picking. And so we didn't really talk about that before, but June Hill's work uh, in CSIRO, I find it really interesting. And I'm not actually using it right now, but but it it's a very good piece of work and 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 I can see applications for it at certain parts of the mining chain where you want to you want to automate some some boundary picks like and when I say boundary picks it might be lithology it might be other domains and 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 you can set that up for success by picking the right variables that that feed into solving for that particular um, unit or or domain that of interest and and Scott Halley of course is just you know he's doing he's done a great service to the industry by putting those tutorials up because it's very hard for us inside major companies to sometimes to use data that um, is useful for instructive purposes like that and and so Scott's managed to grab some data and put it up with some guides and we can point people to that as part of the development and but you know his his work is needs to be the basis for what we're doing going forward you know that's the sort of basic skills that everyone should have and then we've got to build on top of that with other ideas like how do you tell how similar certain samples are how do you tell where the right boundary is and how do you automate that so that we don't have to um, have a geologist sitting there in every hole picking every contact you know we've got to get to the point where we're doing something a little smarter where we're providing them with a summary Maybe maybe the context predicted in two ways. Maybe it's done one with a wavelet tessellation model type approach, or and then there's another where it's picked using uh, some sort of supervised model you've developed with the likes of Data Rock or someone like that, right? So you might compare the two of those, and then you say where where they're different. Let's get the geologists to spend their time on the differences because the probability of them being correct elsewhere when they agree is, is lower, and that might be the way that we spend our time as geoscientists going forward. Is that we we end up not having to look to sit in amongst the weeds looking at every single piece of core, but we might be able to spend our time on the most valuable pieces or parts of the core where there's a there's a key boundary or contact or process that's being recorded, and that's where you should spend your time. I mean, think about how much time you spent logging core, and you go, I'm never going to get that back, right? And but there are bits of core I've seen them for going, oh my god. That's really cool, and and you know this is where working in big companies is great because I've worked with some chief geologists who um, who are just ninjas at spotting textures and things that I I just don't see. I'm not a bad geologist, but I'm, I'm I've got nothing <laughs> on these guys. And anyhow, I worked once worked with a guy. Incidentally, who had a photographic memory for every rock he pretty much ever seen, uh, every outcrop he'd ever seen. Uh, he was a, he was a pain in the neck to argue with actually because. Um, he, he could always remember every every example of the thing that he was trying to improve, whereas I'm only vaguely aware of where I've seen it before, and it's sort of nowhere near as effective. <laughs> anyway, so wandered off a little bit, but uh, hopefully that that starts that conversation, or maybe it finished it. I don't know. I think it did a lot of both, though. Building on that, though, I, I wanted to talk a bit about some of the the kind of the classical things, where you're talking about bivariate plots, ternary plots, violin plots, principal components, all tools, the classical geochemist. Although in truth, I really never understood the fascination of the violin plot, but this really, it could be because I was traumatized by my younger sister, who's now a great violinist and educator. That's a bit of an aside as well. 
to go from there to move to higher order statistics, there's a degree in which some of these are definitely still necessary. So the classics definitely, in my opinion, have an important role to play in the future. But what I'm thinking about here is what are your thoughts on where geochemists need to be pushing themselves and moving out of their comfort zone? Because you can't just stay where we are currently, right? and just expect to understand where that next level is and that next step. We can't just jump from doing bivariate plots and then think that automatically, okay, the next step is wavelength tessellation. What do you think we need to do? Yeah, oh, there's a few questions buried in that question. Um, I know, I'm sorry, I'm terrible with that because I tend to have lots of other questions and then I get excited and, oh. Oh, that's good to get excited about this stuff. So look, I know. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I, I guess, I was trained to always look at the chart, never look at statistics. You know, statistics uh, don't tell you a lot sometimes. And, or that, you know, you know, the one thing that I tried when I'm giving geochemistry or data analysis training, I normally say, well, you know, if you make a correlation matrix, oh, for God's sake, can you plot all the scatters that go with it so that you understand what they mean? And, 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 you know, I've given a, couple little guest lectures at the the uni in Brisbane um, around what is an anomaly and how do you identify it and 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 trust I'm going somewhere with this so trust me um, okay uh, I'm, I'm ready yeah. for this <laughs> <laughs> well but you you make different charts for different purposes and say so what what is the chart what is fit for purpose for the problem you're trying to solve and, and so before anyone opens gas or opens you know, now, please don't use Excel to interpret your data, but, you know, whatever. You know, you open gas up. Before you do that, you should be saying, what question am I asking of the data? And and that's that's where you need to start. Now, unless you're li literally happy to go and just explore away and you're not sure what you're going to see and you're in a true discovery process, then that's great. But often we don't have the luxury to do that. We actually have a, a focus, uh, a focusing question for when we're doing data analysis. So. When you have that focusing question, it solves for a lot of different problems because, like for example, the scale problem that I was referring to before with with June Hill stuff, like is it is it at micro centimeter scale, is it meter scale, larger scale? That'll come out of the question that you're asking your data. Which charts you make also come out of that same question. So if you know what you want to do, you'll go, okay, well I need to look at the probability plots. I need to understand the distribution of my data if I'm looking for populations. Um, within the, the samples that I've collected. Maybe you're doing lithogeochemistry, right? And you need to understand the units first before you can then go and map the alteration. So the question will kind of constrain which charts are useful to get you to the, to the end point. And I don't, I like to see all my data. So I like plots that have all the dots. Uh, and one of the things that, that I really love in GAS is the data density tool, right? Which is shows you where the bulk of the data is in your data set, because your eyes are inevitably drawn to the to the extremes of the data, the edges of the cloud. But often that's actually not what the story is. Often the story is where the most data is actually sitting in there. Um, or at least you need to constrain what that process is that, that, that shows that where, that where all your samples are plotting. So if once you've got, you have a chart that shows all your points and you can understand what's going on, uh, once you once you have those constrained, um, then then you can I guess you can highlight any individual samples if you're hunting for small things that are different to the rest, and that's where you need to see all the points. Um, but uh, other times you need to then step back and summarise that information for people who are higher up the chain or don't have the same expertise as you. And even though I hate box plots with a passion, uh, <laughs> because 
because they hide all the points, right? It's hard to see what's going on in them. Um, they are very, uh, and I've had it beaten into me by some of my geochemical colleagues in my current company. Uh, I need to use them when I'm communicating about the story because other people can understand the differences in a box plot. Whereas if they look at a probability plot and they don't know what they're looking at. And, and it's easy to forget that your audience doesn't have the same background as you. Um, so, so, you know, that's talking a bit about the chart types. You know, there's ones where you're getting information out of your data and others when you're communicating about your data. And, and we are, we're kind of storytellers in geoscience, right? We've got, to, we've got to tell a story from the data and we need the tools to do it. So you pick the charts at work. Um, but, you know, then you go uh, a bit further about, well, what do you need now to be able to do that storytelling? And I think people coming through university now, they're not getting the same fundamental grounding in geology uh, or geochemistry for that matter. And we only have one geophysics. Uh, geophysics has only been taught in one institution in Australia now, by the way. I think that's okay, though. <coughs> <laughs> well, <coughs> so this is where I'm going with this, is that I... Um, uh, as, as much as we like to denigrate the practitioners of the dark arts. Um, Indeed. We, um, we are the power we of Craig Capella. Yeah, we're, we're we are in the murky art business ourselves, right? And, um, <laughs> and it's not quite dark, but it's a little bit, you know, turbid sometimes. Um, but we, we need our graduates to come through with, with greater math skills. And uh, because a lot of the, the more advanced approaches that people are applying in data science, there are a lot of mathematical underpinnings that that I don't understand, for example, I, I sort of get smarter people than I am to, to dumb it down for me so that I can see what it's doing to the data. And that's how I tend to understand it. I don't understand the maths, but I understand what it does to the data. And, and, and that kind of serves a purpose. But I think going forward, um, geoscientists need to carry more maths with them. And and, and inevitably, you know, geophysics, uh, physics is an extension of maths. And um, you know, having more of that will be very helpful going forward in, in understanding what you're doing with your data, all the things that you can do with it. I mean, if you asked me five years ago that whether I'd be looking at um, like TSNE or UMAP and 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 actually using that as part of my workflow almost daily, I would have laughed at you because, you know, we've had fads of multivariate analysis in the past with like factor analysis, for example. You know, that was the... That was the absolute bane of geochemistry for a while because everyone would just do a factor analysis and hope to get an answer out of it. But if you you look at where we're going now, so TSNE, UMAP, they're things that people find useful now. What might turn up in five years out of the out of the maths fraternity, right? It'll be something developed for a completely other reason, and then some bright spark. We go, you know what? We can apply this to geoscience data, and suddenly you'll have a new way of looking at data. And and to be ready for that. You need more math skills, and and most of us go to geology because we couldn't do maths very well, right? Or at least in my generation. But I think yeah. that has has to change. And and I don't know if, if you've got anything to say that you're looking a bit 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 I know. Uh, so, I guess so. I, I'm about too much. Oh my god, I'm I am just mumbling all over the place because it makes me so nervous too. You have such a great point there. I am. I was great at algebra. Once I got to calculus, everything went out the window. Um, any kind of looking at maths does definitely make me nervous. But I, so I'm not saying that you are wrong here at all. I hope that we don't preclude people from coming to the geosciences because now they have a higher maths component. That said, I took three calculuses 
linear algebra and something else horrific. Oh, a statistics course and something else. Again, horrific for my degree. So I managed to squeak by everybody else in the future. I think you can do it too. But I think also what comes forward in the future is, or even now, I mean, I have cleverly become friends with great data scientists and I plan to keep it that way. Yeah, <laughs> they so don't know my ulterior becoming, motives. <laughs> they're becoming expensive though, those guys, you know. <laughs> but that's why they're my friends. Ah, right. <laughs> There's a difference, you know, you, here's you working for, you know, for a major mining company and you use them in a different way. Me, I use them maybe in the same way, but as, as friends, you know, it's a totally different situation. So I can just recommend to everybody that they get their own data science friends. And then that's where the, the, the magic happens. You talk about dark arts, that is some dark arts right there. Yeah, look, um, actually, you know, uh, facetiousness aside here, I think, uh, one of the, the key parts is team composition, right? And that you, not yes. every, look, not every geologist is going to be um, into data science and into getting most out of the data. And that's where, that's why you see people sort of commonly now, I think geochemists, who turn into a geochemist at some point in their career, they don't go to uni thinking they're going to be one. And, uh, and you know, you, you get to a certain point, you go, no, actually, I'm really interested in the data side of thing. And that's where, that's where we're attracting a lot of geochemistry um, applicants for roles that we put out at the moment is, is coming out of masters and PhDs where they've been faced with a data volume issue. Uh, they don't have the software to handle it and they've sort of been forced down the data science route to solve their own problem, right? And I, I think that's fine. You don't expect every geologist to be like that. You'd still need the guy who just, just can see structure in 3D in his head um, who yeah. can unfold five generations of fold or whatever, um, and then and do that. You you need the guy that can that um, can spot different rock types. So there's a there's a lady I work with in the current company who is amazing at minerals. She can look at core, and it's like she has an XRD in her eye. Like uh, she just goes and she can pick them visually. I don't know how she does it. Uh, so you, you have a you have different people with different strengths, and. And I'm not suggesting that every geologist needs to go this way, but to give yourself the best chances of adapting in the industry, I think having um, an increased maths and data science component to your science degree um, is, is probably a good thing because hopefully the large companies, when they bring people in and graduate programs, will provide some good um, geoscience grounding if the universities are not providing that. Now, that's not a given, right? It's a separate topic. But I think that's the reality is that companies are having to do a bit of gap filling in terms of basic skills. But but it's easy to do when someone's got all the, all the, the tools and advantages of a, a good science training background. Uh, you can you can give them content later on a little bit, if that makes sense. Um, so anyway, sorry, carry on. No, it, this totally follows through. And the other, the follow-up question that I have is that, you know, right now, and, and this was talked about in, in, in Hill um, et al., you know, with them using the wavelength tessellation to provide coherent geological domains. Um, in this paper, and in when we talk amongst other geochemists uh, and data scientists, we're, we're, it, sounds, it seems now routinely that we talk about terms like uh, centered log ratios, imputation, clustering, and other stats terms. And as geochemists, these aren't necessarily part of the language that we have. And so I guess 
And as we've been talking about just now, what are some additional maybe recommendations that you have for geochemists to join this crossover movement when there's this whole new language that we're not necessarily fluent in? Yeah, look, I think in the academic space, there's been a lot of work around compositional data analysis. Um, you know, you talk about centered log ratios and there's ILR and ALR and a lot of that came out of Aitchison's work a long time ago. Um, but that has a place. And again, it's about what is fit for purpose in terms of what you need, right? Um, so if you if you approach your geosciences problem as a geoscientist and, and, and assume that not everything is random, right? Um, if you're looking at uh, a set of intrusive rocks, you know that the composition is going to be controlled by mineralogy and the relative amounts of those minerals in a particular sample. And that's where some of Cliff Stanley's you know, and Pierce's work in the past around uh, Pierce element ratios and general element ratios holds. And a lot of, there's a lot of academic back and forth around the relative uh, flaws of using things like a Pierce element ratio because of induced correlation and stuff like that. It's it's kind of, they're missing the point a little bit in, in that um, there are problems where you know what is controlling the variability in the data, or you should be able to work that out with the data you've got at hand. And then um, ratio plots like general element ratios are perfectly good for mapping mineralogy, for example. And that's great. There are other times though when you need to prepare your data for uh, being thrown into some black box. I'll just say it that way for the moment. It's, it shouldn't be a black box, but this, for the sake of arguments, you're gonna chuck it into some machine learning black box. You need to uh, deal with closure effects, for example, when you're doing that. And that's where something like centered log ratio, uh, um, as, as using that as part of your data preparation is really important because it gets rid of a closure effect and it doesn't matter too much what the numbers mean. You know, if you take a CLR of a set of samples, you free it up from closure effects, but you end up with the numbers that don't mean anything anymore to someone. Whereas if you look at a Pierce element ratio and potassium aluminium molar ratio is one, and your sodium aluminium ratio is um, very low, you go, oh, okay, that's probably case bar or biotide. It means something to you, right? So, so to, you've got to choose the tools that suit what you need to do. Now, how do you know how to choose which tools, right? And that's where I think you need, that's why I, I, when I say maths, uh, there's a bit of statistics in that as well, but reading reading around compositional data analysis will, will prepare you for that. And look, where do you find the time in your day to do that kind of thing, right? I don't know. And so <laughs> Come I, on, I, Mike. I did, a, I did a PhD and of course, uh, I, I was one of the older school PhDs where you actually had time to stare at your, uh, your belly button for a long time. And, and that's where I did a lot of that, right? Is that I, I took the time during my PhD to, to, to broaden my field of view about how you deal with data. And that is one pathway to do that. Um, we, we commonly offer development opportunities inside the company I work for at the moment, for example, for people to take some time to do that as well, or, or even in role, when you're doing something in, in your current role and you're being directed towards solving a particular problem, there's an opportunity there to to pick up some literature to, um, to to help you solve the problem, but hopefully you've got a mentor uh, inside or outside the company to help you um, find the quickest route through it. And that, again, that comes down to your network as well. You should never be afraid to reach out to people who are smarter than you. Um, and for me, that's a lot of people. So there's a lot of smarter people out there than I am. 
And I often uh, will, will drop an email to them or a LinkedIn question and go, you know what, I don't get this. Can you, um, how do you deal with this? What does it mean to you? And they'll give me a what they think is a solution, right? And then eventually you have to make your own call about what you think is practical or not. I don't know if I answered your question. Did I answer your question in the end? I mean, I just want to make a comment. You're much kinder than I am. You're like LinkedIn email. I'm like on WhatsApp. If they don't answer within five minutes, I'm like calling them. (laughs) Answer my question. I don't understand what this means. (laughs) Um, I find people actually pretty responsive these days, uh, depending on what you want to do. Uh, So, yes. But but response is responsive. I mean, five minutes for me is responsive. So it doesn't matter if you're in Australia or you're in North America. I mean, I want I want them now. I'm from New York. <laughs> yeah, look, I, I guess I've worked for large companies for a few years now. Maybe maybe the, the pace of time days, is different. A few days, a few weeks is different, yeah. yeah. Usually no, I never really shed in New York. <laughs> you go no, I was going to say, in, in that sense, I think that you answered a lot, a lot of my question. I think the only part that we're really missing there is when I talk about languages that we're fluent in, it's really just geochemistry language like you're talking about is, is really understanding more about the Pierce element ratios, the general element ratios, things that are really much more specific to finding out what's happening in the geochemical space. But then you have all this, especially this higher order statistics and these now machine learning terms as well, the UMAPs, the TSNE, different types of XGBoost, random forest, you have all this stuff going on. I guess the question that I really have that the one part that you didn't really cover is as a geochemist, do we need to go out there and learn every single thing there is to know about it, be able to apply every single thing there is to about it to to our own data? Or is it better just to say, okay, going forward the next the next five years, the plan at the company is that for every geochemist we have, we also have their teammate will be a data scientist. Something more like that. So yeah, look, let, let me answer that, that in this way. Like about Five or six years ago, um, I, I I realized that I was getting left behind technically in my approach to dealing with data. So inside my role, I looked at um, trying to just gradually add new techniques and capabilities into the way I was looking at my data. But then I also organized for the company I was in a data science workshop with uh, with some mutual friends of ours, incidentally. Um, and <laughs> And, you know, they were very patient with uh, an idiot like myself sitting there going, oh, what does that mean again? I know you've told me three times, but but I, I did a couple of those, well, one of those where I was the participant, and then I organised some other training later on for other geoscientists, and I sit on the sidelines, and I'm still picking up subtleties and, 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 and nuances that I didn't quite realise when I was first walking down that pathway. Uh, yeah, even even just the the vernacular of the data science world is a little different. Sometimes it's uh, unnecessarily obtuse, if I could call it that. <laughs> um, there is a there's a reference somewhere I, I grabbed randomly where it uh, explains all the data science terms. Like it's like paid like uh, fifty pages long of data science terms with some sort of explanation. It's like a glossary of data science terms, but. I, I guess I took it gradually. In 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 the role that I was in, I, I took some time, I did some workshops, and I facilitated facilitated some other work, um, and then when I needed to, I brought in external people to augment what I was able to to already do, and I, I took a gradual approach. So that's the luxury I had in that role. Not everyone wants to take that long to get to that path, but I, it, you can do 
a lot of micro-credential type stuff now uh, where I think you can pick up on some of these concepts and, and, and ideas very quickly. But the only caveat to that is I would say when you go into that, go in with some of your own data that you understand and some problems that you want to answer, go into those with that in in your hands ready to go and you'll get a hell of a lot more out of it. Um, it's like when you do a software training course, right? It's all super clear when you're sitting in the software course and then you a week later you can't remember how to do a thing in it because they gave you um, an idealised data set to work with, nothing in the real world. Uh, you know, the best way to learn is with the stuff that you're actually going to face from a day-to-day -day basis and I, I would suggest that, yeah, if you go down the credential, micro-credential side, go in there with some things that you want to achieve when you start. Don't just sit there and do the course and then think it'll add value by itself. Does that help? Yeah, and I have to, yeah, no, absolutely. And what you said really spoke to me because the way that I became more fluent in data science language is I worked at um, a hyperspectral imaging provider for five years uh, and with them, you know, tons of data, big data, worked with the, the CEO, the director of the company there, had a huge mind for how to deal with such large data. So working alongside of him, working alongside of our clients where they had their in-house data science teams or working with uh, outside consultancies. And then just because I found it fun in all the free time that I may or may not have had, I would start to play with client data and to show them different things that they could be doing with their data, with the data, with this hyperspectral imaging data set. So it was, I think, a similar thing to what you're saying in the sense that I did organize also workshops for people where they could see their data used in a different way than they were used to. And then I also educated myself along the way so that at some point it just becomes a skill that, that you have on the side, which not necessarily that I want to use in my daily consulting life, but it is really ha handy to have because if somebody asks, oh, hey, could I do something like this? Well, the answer is yes. And then you can talk to this person, this person, or this person, and they can help you with that. And I think that becomes a very powerful skill set to have, especially because we deal with so much uh, data as geochemists. So I think that's a great point, Mike. Yes. And uh, look, um, you know, I, I just, it's, there's no fixed pathway. Everyone's going to have a different balance of where totally. they sit in the spectrum. So you have geos who dabble in geochemistry, you have geochemists who are pretty strong geoscientists and geochemists who move into the data science world. And you've just got to follow your passion, get out of bed for each day. You know, um, if, you, <laughs> if, you, if you get out of bed and you don't mind going to work, you're probably in uh, and, and eventually in your career, you'll, you'll kind of wonder if you get the opportunity to think about it. Um, doesn't you kind of got to move towards that uh, you know, you've got to learn some basics and and see as many rocks as you can early in your career understand the you're working in uh, does that make sense yeah no you make a good point about it you have geochemistry you have data science but at the fundamental part of it you have geology and you have to understand it's like if you go it's like 
you know, any kind of consulting job that I was to pick up or you starting a new project, you're always going to go out to the field to see the rocks first before you start. You need that context. So starting out your career and getting a really good feel for the geology part of it and then moving into these other spheres, it's just adding on. And it's actually a really good thing that people do in their lives to, to start to really specialize. And some people go down that that weird uh, road of, you know, I can see structure in five dimensions in my brain. And then there's, you know, people like us that are just like, give me a graph and let's uh, look at what uh, potassium and aluminum are doing. So, you know, everybody has their own flavor. Okay, so building on what we've just been talking about, what are your recommendations towards data science consultancies that analyze geochemical data? Uh, in terms of you know, how they should approach solving the problem for us or in, in which companies you would use? Like, what, what do you mean? I guess with that, the question is more, do you think that data science companies that aren't working with geochemists, do you think that they should oh, yeah. be taking more caution with the data? Do you think they should be employing geochemists in order to really work to the best of their ability with it? What is your opinion on that? What What have you kind of seen around? Yeah, look, um, okay, now, now now, I'm with you. Sorry, it took me a while okay. to catch up there. Uh, Sorry, look, it's early. It's, yes, so it's uh, what what I've found, I guess, is we've, you know, we've been implementing a few uh, supervised models, for example, um, inside the company I'm working in. I've done things in the past uh, around that as well. And what, what you tend to find is that if you don't have any domain expertise, in the team that's trying to solve a problem, you'll end up not solving the right problem. Uh, you know, you, you, the classic is, you know, you might get a, a you know, pure data scientist, if you hand them some geochemistry data, that what they'll probably tell you at the end of the day is that you've had two different labs. You know, so, <laughs> so you know, that, that's the sort of thing that might pop out if you don't have the right team composition. So to, to get together to solve the problem. And, and the way that I like to, to see it done is that there has to be someone who expands the boundaries between the data scientist and the and, and the geoscience world. Um, and and commonly the geochemist can be that person because we are we we we're the old school data scientists before it became data science, right? And uh, and we're in a great position to understand both the geology and the data. And I think that data science consultancies do need to put in that expertise. And, and you know, I can think of two data science consultancies uh, who have, I guess, realised that with time and they've brought people in of varying skills in the geochemistry space, but they've, they've tried to build that crossover capability in, in, just inside their own groups rather than relying on the client to have that capability. Um, so, yeah, it's pretty important to have that. And, you know, whether it's, Geochemistry, if you're, for example, looking at you know sample and assay data, or or a geophysicist, if you're looking at geophysical data and you're trying to incorporate that, or uh, as we're increasingly probably going to do in the future, combine both geophysics and geochemistry data. And how do you do that sensibly, right? You need all the people in the room who understand the subject matter, uh, as well as, and that includes, of course, the pure data scientist. You know, if that's if that's someone that you've got at the table as well, because that they will know their game, but they don't necessarily understand the data or the implications of choices that they make, whether it's data transformations or the way that they approach the model, building the model, or the way that they iterate that or or find outliers and their impacts. You you need 
more than one person or more than one skill set uh, there at that time. Hopefully that answers the question. It does, and I think it's a great point. So to finish out your show, I feel that it's just very pertinent to talk about something that's very close to my heart. Mike, you probably don't know me that well just yet, but if there's one thing that gets me going after working in hyperspectral imaging for so many years, it's core logging. And that, as anybody that's uh, read the papers before the show, um, that's tackled really interestingly in the Hill et al. paper. Now, I presume in your role at work, you have been cranking away at some kind of tool to at least semi-automate core logging, but this show is about Mike Whitbread, the man. So is there a (laughs) rant that you would indulge us with on core logging? How do we move to the next phase in mining and mineral exploration, which is to say data-driven core logging? Well, you've well, you've answered the question for me almost. Um, oh, you know, but I mean, I want the rant is what I want. <laughs> well, you know, look, um, I, I think actually it might have been Cliff Stanley had a had a great example slide where he showed the logged units from a bunch of geos versus the actual units from a bunch of core that they were logging, and it was completely random, right? <laughs> so so depending on the skill sets that you've got in the team that you've got, how good the, the person who's mentoring that team is and how they, how consistent they can make them. A lot of your lithology logging is not very useful. Now, now, having said that, you know, one of the things that I do increasingly find that is useful with that data is uh, when you've got a, you're building some sort of data cloud, like some sort of view of the data cloud in whichever variables that you're interested in at the time, being able to put the lithology labels onto that that someone's logged is actually very useful, even if they're a bit scattered, because you get a feel for what the clusters mean. If you're seeing clusters in your data, um, you know, if you're going through an unsupervised approach, for example, you know, you go, okay, oh, okay, it's mostly logged as mafic. Um, you know, someone's called it a granite, yay, um, but it's probably it probably is mafic. Um, so, so there is value in what we already have, probably better value than we were able to achieve before, but we need to stop people logging with just their eyes and and a scratcher. Um, we can't, you know, there was a lady I referred to before. She's an absolute ninja at mineralogy, at spotting stuff on core, and I've only ever met one of her. <laughs> There's not like a, a, a thousand of her kicking around, and you can't have her on your project, right, most likely. You can't, you can't always have your best geologist on every piece of core. So how do you how do you do that? And and one of the ways of doing that is collecting the right information on every piece of core that you ever get and presenting that some sort of domain or summary of that to the geologists as they're logging. And if you've got the luxury and in, in, in big companies, you can do that. You can then start to have your best geologist interpret some of that, those summary groups that you're producing so that it has better context as well. And then you're effectively almost like cloning your your best geologist and putting them on every project to some extent and and what the what your junior geos can do they not only do they learn about what that guy or girl could see but they can um also question them when they don't think they're right because when there's something that doesn't make sense with what they're seeing versus what is being predicted out if you've got some sort of supervised model you've built whether it's out of the the um, spectral data or the rgb or, or combined with the geochemistry it doesn't matter when, when it deviates from what you're seeing with your eyes, what's being predicted, that's the real value. And they're the ones that people can 
as a logger, you go, okay, well, I don't know what this is. The model doesn't know what this is. Let's go work it out. That's really cool stuff, right? And that's almost what the logging geologist's job in the end should end up being is, is, is around identifying the things that are not expected. Um, you know, they validate what should come out of the data automatically. That's where we should end up. We, we shouldn't be having 20 geos spending days in 45 degrees having a crap time um, logging core pretty poorly. Like, that's just a waste of everyone's time. Why, why would we want to do that now? And uh, so I think, yeah, we, we have to change that process. We have to provide them with, they need to be logging the core with the information at hand. And our assaying is a bit challenged there because of the long turnarounds that we get at the moment. But um, but I think with scanning tools, um, there's no reason why they can't turn around quickly. And, and hopefully the, the capital costs of those will decrease with time and so that you can you can have them more available. But you know, I, I think there's a lot of value. As long as you don't mess up your, um, your structural or geotech information, um, moving the core to a logging facility where you've got the instruments and you sort of aggregate that capability in one location is a cost-effective way of doing that. And your geologists can log in relative comfort and with the relative uh, you know, uh, bucket loads of information that they might need to, to make a good call on that on, on that, that call log process, if that makes sense. Well, thank you so much, Mike. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Geochemistry uh, and really, Mike, for stopping by the show, dishing some great tea and taking us on this really great journey. I want to thank also our sponsor, LKI Consulting, and to It's Water and Coma Media for our music. And if you want to learn more about the show or submit a request to be on the show or recommend a geochemist to chase up, please go to our website at geochemistry.com. I'm looking forward to chatting with everybody next month, and I really hope, Mike, that you had just as much fun as we did. Yeah, no, that was great. It was great to wander through a few topics and hopefully... Um... Hopefully some of it made sense at the end of the process. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye.